there. Too lazy to write. You decided to tune in to me, huh? I appreciate it. It's me, your host, The Real John Baker, um, back again for the fourth week in a row. The first week that I was back, I just rambled on about nonsense. The second week, I believe I interviewed Penny Greenberg. Third week was Jay Shore. And now I'm back again today with another interview, and I'll tell you about that person in just one second. But before I get to that, I just want to uh, say I hope everybody is um, staying healthy and staying uh, clean, hand-washing, going out in public with either a mask on or some other protective gear, Um, and you're just all looking after each other. It's been a little crazy times, um, which is probably why I've put four of these uh, out in four weeks, really craziness. Uh, it was nice. We did our Passover Seders via Zoom, like a number of people did. Um, and it was good to see uh, my family getting together like that. Um, what else? Uh, and then yesterday I was involved in a Zoom call with, um, there's probably about 15 or 20 people on it. Uh, many of them knew each other from a program that they were involved with uh, back in 19... 19- 87, 87, 88. Um, I knew some of the people from Camp Gesher, where I went. Uh, if you're interested in learning about a pandemic and how uh, you were to deal with one, go back to listen to episode four of this, where I spoke with Ruth Rakoff. But yeah, it was neat. I got to see some old friends, and uh, that was a lot of fun. But forgetting all that, um, who do I speak with today? Well, if any of you have ever seen me out and about wearing a uh, jacket that looks like I belong on a baseball field with a cat over the left breast. Um, I bought that shirt online, or that jacket online, at a uh, place called Ebbets Field Flannels. And uh, Ebbets Field Flannels, they've been around since the 80s, founded by a gentleman by the name of Jerry Cohn. And uh, Jerry founded it because he was interested in wearing vintage jackets Team, team wear, uh, and he just couldn't find any. So he did the next best thing and created it himself. I called up Jerry. Uh, he lives out in Seattle. He's doing great. His, his retail operation, his storefront is obviously closed, but they're, they're still cranking stuff out online. Um, and I spoke with Jerry. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about his love of music. We talked about his love of, uh, sports history. Um, and just how this uh, business evolved and, and what it means to him and how he kind of in his own way is also part of Americana by preserving these traditions of these, of this, uh, you know, this, this team wear that everybody uh, wants. It's really great. And uh, I own a lot of the stuff, I'm not going to lie. And it was really nice to talk to him. So here it is, the interview I did with Jerry Cohn of uh, CEO of uh, Ebbets Field Flannels. And uh, I hope you like it, because it was fun to talk to him. Sir, how are things in Seattle today? Well, you know, weather-wise, very nice. Um, business-wise, things are difficult and tense. And uh, we'll be that way for the foreseeable future. Yeah, let's let's talk about that for a second. So um, just so people know, you uh, own and operate a company called Ebbets Field Flannels. Correct. Which, uh, which basically you reproductions of vintage uh, sportswear. Exactly. So how, I'm looking, I have your your whole history here, and there's a lot I want to ask you about, Uh, but uh, in your own words, how did this passion begin? Well, it, uh, the short version is in the late 80s, um, I sort of was reviving my childhood interest in baseball uniforms. You know, sports graphics generally were always of an interest to me, as was sports history. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, I was simply wanting a, a vintage baseball wool jersey for myself. It, it had not occurred to me to start a business. Oh, okay. And 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 through my research and my continuing, <laughs> what became an obsession, I was dissatisfied with what was available. And uh, through a, a long series of uh, events which you know probably took about two years i ended up finding some old uh wool baseball uniform fabric and bought it 
and went and had patterns made and, uh, you know, made shirts for myself and then people wanted to make me have me make them for them. And that's how we got started. And and that was, where were you? Cause you're, you're in Seattle now, but you grew up, you were born, uh, in Brooklyn, yeah, this was, this was, I was, but this was in Seattle as well. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah. what were you doing prior to starting this? Well, musician, which I still am. Okay. Um, and really I wanted uh, to wear shirt, these shirts in the band for performances. Okay. So that's that was kind of the original motivation. And you weren't in the in the market to create new ones. Like no, not at all. Okay. I, it, it had not occurred to me to be in you know any kind of. I, I didn't go to college. Even I, I was purely a rock and roll guitar player. Um, the whole idea of of owning or starting a business really came when I I just became really taken over by this idea of accurately reproducing these jerseys and uh i was really in love with it and, and i got very passionate about it so that's the way many businesses start and right. we're no different um and that's really how we ended up doing that and now do you have um in your family do you have uh kids or, or brothers relatives sisters who are in the business as well no, I mean my my father was in the garment business in New York when we were there, but I didn't really have any interest in it at the time. I, you know, I joke with him that I wish I had paid more attention because he, you know, he he bought he had many jobs in uh, like many you know immigrant Jewish families. They went into the apparel business, and he had many jobs like buying fabric and things like that that I still do. Uh-huh. So I could have learned a lot. <laughs> But uh, you know, some of that experience came in handy later on when we when we started, and I was able to to talk with him about it. By that time, he was well out of the garment business. Sure, sure. Now, um, before we continue to talk about this, what sort of music? You said you were in a rock and roll band. What yeah, you are? I, I am now again after many years of semi retirement. Um, what uh, what sort of what style are you guys like? Who are your influences? Uh, Personally, I'm kind of a Beatles, Stones, Dylan guy, and then uh, I love the uh, Elvis Costello and the Attractions and the Replacements are are two okay. of my favorite bands. So I guess the kind of I would call it smart rock and roll. Sure. I also like um, I like Chicago blues. You know, I, I like a lot of different music, but my my influences are pretty much. You know, the Beatles, Stones, and then the uh, 80s with the replacements and 70s on to later with Elvis Costello. You know, basically song-based. Um, not a great... You know, I wish I knew more about jazz. I don't. Um, sure. But I, I appreciate it. I appreciate almost all kinds of music. And what's, hopefully... Um, yeah. I was just asked, what's your opinion on the new Dylan songs? I like... I mean, it's so strange, you know, to... I listened to it when it first came out and uh, I love Dylan by the way. And so, you know, like a lot of people, um, I was fascinated by it and wondering when it was recorded. And, you know, he had apparently been sitting on this for a number of years. So um, it's really an atmospheric track that kind of builds and grows. It's very non-traditional in terms of songwriting. Um, I think he plays piano and I think it's just kind of like, a little bit of atmosphere behind the piano and him, you know, evoking these various images. Um, it's kind of stream of consciousness. So I think it works like a lot of Dylan stuff on different levels. You know, if you're looking for a straight on story of the JFK assassination, that's not really what it is. Right. Right. It's a, it's a bit of a dreamscape almost. Um, you know, so I, you know, I love anything, not, anything he does he's done some you know like a lot of great artists he's done some work that's not great but um you know it's funny music because i've been watching the ken burns country music um, series it's just amazing yeah and the uh cross-pollinization between dylan and johnny cash and that that sort of thing really fascinates me yeah i was watching Um, that and i was just so impressed with how it, it wasn't like it started out the episode I watched, it was very compartmentalized, but then it had this great thread through it that kind of took me from, I forget where we began, but it ends up talking about outlaw country. And it really opened my eyes to a lot of things I didn't know about. Yeah. I mean, the the great thing about, I think the period of time I grew up listening to music, which really 
started with AM radio in the 60s and the Beatles, mm-hmm. was radio in those days ha- was such a uh, wonderful um, um, format because you heard all kinds of different music, you know, because right. R&B and country and even, um, you know, the, the popular singers like Sinatra and those guys would cross over onto Top 40. It wasn't so segmented by genre as it is today when you could just completely you know, not have to hear any other kinds of music except what you think you already like, right. which is the same as news now or many other yeah. kinds of information. So I, I'm very lucky that, you know, I mean, I, I remember that uh, one thing he covers in one of the episodes was the Ode to Billy Joel, okay. um, that song, which just fascinated and creeped me out when I was a kid. I must have been about <laughs> 10 when that came out. And, uh, and, I just love the idea that radio took me down many different pathways into sure. discovering different kinds of music, and, and country was sort of one of them, though I, I'm, I'm way more educated now after watching this than I was before. But, sure. you know, I already knew people like Hank Williams and George Jones and that kind of thing. But um, so anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just fascinated with history generally, you know, bringing it back to Ebbets Field. It's really more... Right. We call ourselves historians more than you know, um, you know, clothing makers in a sense. Though we, you know, we feel like both of those things have to be done well for us to be successful. Well, I want to let you know before, excuse me, before we continue, I am wearing my Cats's uh, baseball T-shirt. Oh, great! I do have it on, and I'm not just you know t- bullshitting you. I'm really wearing it, and I have a collection that um, that I'm really proud of, and. You know when, like, two bus drivers will pass each other, they'll give each other yeah, a nod? exactly. So I, okay, I feel like I do that when I'm wearing one of your shirts. I'll see somebody coming my way, and, you know, we'll give each other that Ebbets Field nod. Like, we we both know something. Yeah, that's a great, uh, a great thing to pick up on because um, I really do think that that's kind of the the relationship we have with our customers and that our customers have with each other. Um, we like to think of ourselves as a community, and the reason I've been reaching out and doing these little low-tech videos is, is um, you know, maybe we haven't done as good a job on the communication um, as we used to. I mean, I remember back in the back in the day. I hate to be that old guy, but sure. you know, there was a day when there was no internet, yeah, and people would write us letters. And uh, I would sit there in the early days and I would answer every single letter, you know, really? uh, with a typewriter or, you know, word processor. Yeah. And and this is a little bit like that now because as I'm doing these videos, it creates a, a two-way loop or, you know, a loop. And, and customers will email me back and say, I like the video and here's what I think about this or that of what you said. And I'll respond to them by email so that it's a loop now. It's not just a one-way communication. And, you know, I mean, there are a lot of great companies out there, but I'm not sure Nike really does that or no. New Era or anybody no. like that. So so I, I've i really been enjoying it. You know, I've had to try to take this crisis because it is a crisis. I'm not right. going to downplay it. And uh, after a few days of just total panic, you know, there was kind of the realization that, First of all, I have to do something to stay sane. Um, I can't just sit there and, and be paralyzed. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is maybe it's an opportunity to get back to the roots of the brand. And, and we've been internally talking a lot about that um, since, you know, early March. Okay. Okay. And and the roots were in baseball? Uh, well, the roots were completely in baseball, but it was also a, because what we were doing was so story-based and unusual, you know, we were not doing, we had to spend the first three or four years explaining to people, you know, why we didn't have a Yankees or a Mariners, because we were trying to do something different. And and uh, people don't remember, maybe we were the first ones to tell the story of the Negro Leagues. You know, that wasn't a thing that people knew about. Now, of course, right. everybody does, which is great, but there were no turn-back-the-clock games and there was no Negro Leagues Museum. And um, we should be a little bit um, immodest about what we've done. We were really the first to disseminate a lot of that history. Mm-hmm. And so it felt like really a, a special mission, not just a, a business. And, um, you know, through the years, I, I think, we've we've tried to come up with uh, 
news stories. It, you know, obviously there's with so much information available now, it's hard to come up with something completely new that nobody's ever heard of. But you know, we try to shine a light a little bit on things that are less known. I would put well, it that way. Can you do me a favor and tell yeah. me because I I hope I have two of these. Can you tell me the story of the Hebrew orphans? Well, the Hebrew Orphan Asylum was actually a very large building on Amsterdam Avenue. Anyone who's been to New York, um, the upper, far upper west side, I think around 100th Street. I actually used to live for a couple of years very close. Um, okay. And there was a, and in those days, um, you know, the word, you know, the, 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 uh, Polite, you know, asylum is not a nice word now, but back in the day, it, it kind of was a common thing where you had orphanages and they were called asylums. So the Jewish one was the Hebrew Orphan Asylum. So mm-hmm. all the Jewish orphans were gathered into this gigantic building and, and kind of like they had a lot of recreation. So they had baseball teams and basketball teams and um, they had their own um, baseball field. The other, a couple of other interesting things about the Hebrew Orphan Asylum, that was intended to be where Yankee Stadium was going to be built. They they actually um, looked at that land and were going to build there when the Yankees were wanting to move out of the polo grounds. They didn't want to be tenants of the Giants anymore. So they wanted to build their own park. And initially it was going to be built on the grounds of what was the Hebrew Orphan Asylum. Uh, They soon found cheaper land in the Bronx, so they changed their, their plan and, and built there. So that was one interesting thing. Another interesting thing about about that is their, apparently their facilities for baseball were of a high enough caliber that um, a lot of Negro League games were actually played there. So the New York oh. Black Yankees played you know, professional games at the Hebrew Orphan Asylum. So we just, we just love the story. Uh, yeah. And then, and then you could look up. There's, there's, you know, there's pictures available. You could see their the basketball team, you know, with sure. Star of David on their on their jersey. Yeah, yeah no, I have that one too. That's, yeah, that's one. Of, I have that shirt, and then I have the sweatshirt that just says Hebrew Orphans Asylum on it. And it's interesting because I wore it out, and somebody said to me, "Well, that's anti-Semitic." And I said, "Well, no, it's not." And I totally the I, opposite of anti-Semitic. <laughs> and I, I butchered the story that you just told. I did get yeah. some of the facts right, but um, I find that with your your brand, people want to know more about what they're wearing. It's yeah, that's just- that's great. That we 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 love that um, because mm-hmm. everything we do is a story. Well, not you know, um, and sometimes there's not a whole lot to back up the the garment because we just find a picture, and the picture has a great design on it sure there's not a lot of information available uh but often there is like the cats team and the hebrew orphan asylum and many of the others that we do yeah and have you you're called Abbotsfield flannels was there any um like legality to to that name that you had to overcome no no you know everyone used to ask that in the beginning Um, no because we just simply filed a trademark application for Abbotsfield flannels the whole name so okay. we were not attempting to to claim the just uniquely claim the the, the term Ebbets Field. Okay. okay, it's it's three words, and we own the three words together. And and what about the brands that you that you uh, replicate? Do you run into any problems? No, because the brands like the original sporting goods companies. Well, that's that's really complicated. We'd need a whole other podcast. Um, The short answer is we very carefully research everything. The places where we need licenses, for example, minor league baseball, we've had a license since 1991. So we have rights basically to anything in organized baseball, minor league baseball, 1900 roughly to, you know, 1975, 1980. So in that case, and and then something like the NFL, obviously we have a license or with any of the collegiate stuff we do. Right. And then also you, you go around the world, you have stuff with Japan and Cuba. Yep. 
I've well. personally personally gone to both of those places to do research as well as Mexico and as far away or as obscure as Colombia and uh Venezuela uh-huh. um Cuba, Puerto Rico, Japan. Those are all places I've personally I've gone to Cuba four times. So, you know, um it's it's wonderful to be able to go see a baseball game in a place like Tokyo or Havana. Sure. You see the things that are the same and the things that are much, much different. Yeah. I, well, as a Canadian, I have to tell you, I'm happy when I see um, the odd uh, hockey jersey pop uh, up from Winnipeg. Well, you know, Hoover. I I love the Canadian stuff. In fact, I was talking online with a couple of people today is about as obscure as a get of doing the old ORFU, which was one of the leagues that you probably know, um, formed this, the CFL, um, the the Ontario rugby football union and the big four, which I think was, uh, Toronto, you know, the Argonauts and Hamilton. And, and then there was the, um, what was the uh, the WRFU? Was it the Western Canada Rugby Football Union, where Vancouver and Calgary and Edmonton came from? So those leagues all the all kind of coalesced to form the CFL in the 1950s. Okay, well sign me up. I, I will, so I I, will... I just love all that history, and Canada has so much great, obviously hockey history. Yeah, we would we would do. We haven't added any hockey sweaters for a long time, and simply because technically. Um, they're really hard to do. They're very expensive. Um, if people think they're expensive at what we charge, we should really charge double because the process for making them is, is really crazy. And we have knitting machines, but they have to be programmed. So unlike football and hockey, because of the body striping, technically every jersey is its own program. You have to go in and program them so you're knitting the stripes it's oh, not like okay. those cheesy reproductions other people do with sublimation or sewn-on fabric to to do the striping. Right. The old wool ones were all manually knit with those stripes knit into the garment. So that's how we make them. We make it on a modern machine, but it, it, the end product is exactly the same as the originals. So we haven't added as many as I would like. There's There's tons of research I have that we haven't really got to yet mm-hmm. because... Hockey is not a, it's a, it sells enough to keep doing it, but it's not as big as some of the other stuff we do. Well, I, I bought um, it was this 1972 replica of the Soviet hockey jersey. Right. And I did get an email from somebody there apologizing and explaining exactly what you just told yeah, me. You, you a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. No. Hey, I was fine to wait though. <laughs> you know, and I still actually it's funny. I, I won't wear it. I just like looking at it too much. Yeah, it's it's um it it's you know we we try to do them as quickly as we can, but be, we're not really equipped to be a high capacity knitter. Um, it would take like hiring a bunch more people, and there just isn't the demand. So it's a slow process, and most people like yourself are very very understanding. Um, but because I don't like to make people wait too long, we haven't been very assertive in adding a lot of new styles on the hockey sweaters. Um, and when, maybe when this all mess is over, we can look at that again. Now, um, you also, you've, you've worked with, uh, some movies, right? Oh yeah. We've done quite a few. Um, we haven't done as many as people think. And the reason is there's a company in LA, a costume company that's had a little bit of a monopoly on that work. Um, and they usually get asked to do it first, but, uh, 42, you know, the, the Jackie Robinson yeah. movie, which speaking of Canada, all the Montreal yeah. Royals uniforms we, we did. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, we've done a, we've done a few, oh, the one that came out last year, it didn't do that well, but it was a pretty good story. Uh, the catcher was a spy, which was sure. about Moberg and the tour of Japan. And we made all those beautiful leather sleeve red wool jackets that the, the, uh, USA team was shown, uh, you know, parading through Tokyo in as well as the uniforms for both the Japanese and the, and the U S teams. I'm gonna have to. I, I sometimes see that creep up on HBO. I'll have to. Yeah, I saw it on a plane actually. I thought, oh, okay. I worked on that movie and I hadn't seen it, so 
Um, it, it's a pretty good film, but it kind of missed, you know, wasn't commercially very successful, yeah. but well, have great you heard story. The, have you heard the Chuck Brodsky song uh, about Mo Bird? About what? No, I, I don't think I have. No. Oh, okay. It, it, it details the whole movie, basically. It's, uh, it's kind of neat. Kind of neat. So when you get a call for a movie, does you are you expanding your workforce? Or are you farming it out to contractors? No, no, we you know we just ramp up. Um, the the forty two was tough because um, we had to respond to a lot of changes in the script and and uh, you know when the movies and plays are different than our normal thing because they they'll add actors or change actors at the last minute. Okay. So suddenly they need five more. You know jerseys and and you have to come up with it fairly quickly so um it's a little bit of a different way of working for us that's why the the other the costume company generally is used to doing is working directly with filmmakers and we're we're sort of like we can do it but it's not our area of expertise but what is our area of expertise is having the right fabric and having the historical research Okay. And that's why people come to us, despite the fact that we're probably more expensive than some. Um, but um, 42 is great. We've done a lot of plays. We've done Damn Yankees. We've done many productions of that. We did the play last year in New York uh, about Tony Stone, which was great. Um, great play. We went, we went to New York to see it. And Tony Stone was a female player on the Indianapolis Clowns. So... Um, Great play, and uh, that ran for for many months. So we we do quite a few every year. We do a couple, and um, and hopefully we'll do more. Sometimes we can't meet the deadline, so they'll call us and say we need this stuff in thirty days, and we're like, oh, you know, which we could help you, but you know, we can't. Do you have uh, a favorite era for uniforms? Yeah, or for for logos or. Yeah, I well, yes, I think the 40s and 50s are my favorite. Okay. Yeah, I okay. think there's a certain element of uh, classic, I guess I would call it a classic style that um, I love the hats from that period. That's pretty much the Ebbets hat is the 1940s, 1950s, that construction. If you go back into the early 20s and earlier, it's a little more kind of Halloween costumey looking okay. you know, to most people. You have the collars on the shirts and that sort of thing. Um, and so they don't tend to sell quite as well. But you really get into that kind of classic era, that Jackie Robinson era of late 40s, I would say is my personal favorite. I like the 60s, too. Um, sure. It's the last era of the flannels, but... Um, for Major League Baseball, which, of course, we don't do, that's maybe my favorite era. Okay. They had a lot of the sleeveless uh, uniforms, and uh, by that time, the flannel had really been made lighter. So um, that's another myth I'd like to dispel. People think, oh, my God, how did they wear wool uniforms? Well, um, by World War II, they were they were um, weaving synthetics into the wool, so the actual fabric was no heavier than what they use now, um, oh. and it also wool is breathable. So it was it was cut loosely away from the body. That's why the uniforms were baggy, okay. and also also pretty lightweight. So if you look at pictures from the '60s, you know the uniforms look very very light and trim. Whereas you look at say the 1920s, they look baggy and heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And then in the in the eighties and nineties, the, the baseball ones at least became very, and they still are very tight fitting. Well, so the the tightest fitting era was the seventies when they first came out with the double knit polyester uniforms. The the approach was to go really form fitting, and you had all those fat coaches and those yeah. <laughs> stretchy polyesters, and it wasn't a great look. Um, yeah, I take some small credit because when we started really. Um, in the late 80s, we started really hammering on how much we hated the, the contemporary uniforms. Okay. And and the players and eventually the manufacturers went back to button-down looks and much more traditional looks for the most part. So those V-neck horrible uniforms the Cardinals wore forever and the Reds yeah. and some of the other teams, those really went out in the, by the early 90s in most cases. And they went back to button downs, and they and they. If you just look at a picture of a, say, a contemporary uniform versus a 1965, they they look very very similar. 
the fabric is different, but it, but the cuts and the and the way that it drapes is the same. But if you look at from say 1975, that's where you have that really what I think is a clownish kind of a polyester look. So we'll we'll never see that roll off the other. I, I don't know. You know, people people <laughs> people get nostalgic for all kinds of things, so maybe that comes back. Yeah. And people really want those the triple stripe triple color stripes on the sleeves and the belts you know, which were basically elastic pieces, um, you know, who knows, maybe, maybe that'll get popular again, but by, by the early nineties, that was really fading out. But in the seventies, that was, that was, that was the look. So who is your customer? Well, we have a few types of customers. So what we call our legacy customer, which obviously not, not, as many around anymore. Um, but those would be the people who actually remember that these teams and went to the games or maybe their dad did. Um, and that was probably the, the bulk of our initial customer base. Then we have our storyteller customer. And those are people probably like yourself who love the fact that it's a story and they see someone else in, in Ebbets garment and they can relate to that. It's less a direct link to the team, but they buy into the story. And then um, we have, you know, a, uh, you know, and a lot of the people who buy or who wear our stuff are storytellers. A lot of documentary filmmakers, actors, musicians, which is very interesting and very gratifying. Mm-hmm. The kind of people who discover us are, you know, when I'm doing this stuff or designing it or creating, is exactly the type of people I hope would find it. You know. Right. Uh, you know, interesting chefs and, and, and just a, a really cross-section. It's it's much, much different than, say, your average person who out here would buy a, a Seattle Mariners or Seahawks T-shirt or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So there's some crossover into that group, too. But it's really a more eclectic group. And then I'd say the third category I'd call, they're after the fact that we're the her- heritage brand made in America – and the quality of the of the physical garment, I'd say that's mostly a cap customer. Oh yeah, um, but you know the Williamsburg, Brooklyn type, you know, um, young people, um, and uh, they love the caps because they're 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 not a new era cap. You don't look like you just went to the you know ball game and bought the cap everybody else has. It's a little right. more, it's a little more, it's a softer look. It's a little more built in and worn in looking. Yeah. Um, and that's what people like. I'm always fascinated when people call us and say, how do your hats fit compared to new era? Well, they don't compare to new era. Right. You know, there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong. It's just apples and oranges. Uh-huh. And and sometimes you have to get people off of the, you know, cap collectors. A lot of them really think of new era as the standard. And so they compare everything to that. But, but it's like, it's like if everything were a Chevrolet and suddenly you got a Tesla, you know, it's not, it's just a different thing. Yeah. So um, we've really done well creating kind of an alternative to that new era stiff crown sticker on the goddamn visor. I just hate that. <laughs> I, you know, logo on the side. Yeah. You know, I just, I hate it, you know, and I know that a lot of people love it and they're a very, very successful company and, and, uh, and I'm not at all um, de- demeaning what they do. But my personal taste, my aesthetics are so different from that look. Uh-huh. Um, and we're not really trying to, if that's what people like, we're not really trying to force what we do on them. We're saying, here's another way to look at a baseball cap. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, you know, I um, capitalize every, well, not every year, but I've capitalized on your mystery boxes a number of times. Oh, yeah. And I've, I'm never disappointed because there's always, there's always something interesting that, that pops out of it. Yeah. You know, always you know, a story. It's really fun when we had the idea to do that a number of years ago, because we had, we had all this random inventory because we do so many different hats uh-huh. and then you get to like a, a point of the year where you got to do some inventory clearance. And we thought, well, how can we make this more fun? Um, and then we decided, well, we'll pick the hats, you know, you, yeah. you don't get to pick. Yeah. Um, but, you know, obviously for the price, that's the, that's the trade-off is that sure. the price is amazing and we're going to send you the hats that we think you should get. Um, yeah, no, I love it. And, and for the people who don't understand that, that's cool. Um, but, but, you know, once or twice a year, we still do that. Yeah. Yeah. Are, so are you, I mean, your, 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 your business and what you sell is sort of, 
steeped in the past, but are you a forward-looking yeah. no. person? No. Well, in terms of what? In terms of, you know... Um, Look on life, your... your uh, whatever. Well, forward-looking in terms of what the business is going to do, okay. you know. Um, in terms of... I'm not... I guess the, what I would say is I'm not a contemporary person. I'm not real interested in what... Um, you know, I, I shouldn't say this, but I'm not. I'm not that. I couldn't tell you ten star major league baseball players now. Probably, okay. so it'd be okay. hard for me to do. Yeah. Um, because my interest, you know, is in kind of a, a, you know, it's a certain period of time when I think things were a little more interesting and organic, and um, I, I don't get necessarily. I'm a Mets fan, which is you know means I'm long suffering, but. <laughs> Unless yeah. unless the Mets are in the in the race, and it usually will happen like in August, they'll suddenly start to play well, and I'll be like, okay, are they going to rope me in again now, and I'm going to start paying attention, and they're going to break my heart? Well, usually yes. Um, sure. So on that level, I'll get involved. Um, uh-huh. You know, they got the Mets got in the World Series a few years ago, and that was really exciting, even though they lost. But. Um, but I'm not I'm not an avid follower of contemporary sports. Okay. A lot of people would assume I am, but I'm just I don't have time. You know, yeah. I don't have time to sit there and watch the NBA or whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, that's not my idea of how to spend my spare time. I'm in I'm in this all day long. So right. the idea of watching five you know major league baseball games on a weekend, you know, I. I, you know, I did that 30 years ago, but I, I no longer have the, I don't know, maybe it's my attention span. I don't have the interest um, in it anymore. Do you uh, remember where you were for game six in 1986? Oh, yeah. I, okay. I, I know exactly where I was. So I had just moved to Seattle in my, my studio apartment, the first okay. apartment I've ever had, I ever had on my own. And, uh, course it was raining in seattle and i was watching the game and it was the bottom of the ninth and two outs and you know they were going to lose and i was going to get ready because they were going to lose i was going to go for a walk in the rain and sort of like walk it off because i was really going to be upset and then i decided if i'm a true and i put my i remember putting my shoes on so i put my shoes on two outs and I remember Mookie Wilson coming up and thinking, I've, I've just got to stick it out. I've got to yeah. stick it out to the end, even though I know it's a foregone conclusion. They're going to lose. Red Sox are going to win. I'm going to have to, you know, go out and walk it off. And then, uh, I, then you know what happened. It's every sure, pitch sure. was every pitch was a new lease on life. Yeah. You know, until until of course. So um, that was just crazy joy. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was just really. Really amazing, and my apologies to Red Sox fans. I think but, they've um, gotten over it. <laughs> I, you know, they better have gotten over it because <laughs> for years we had to hear about them. There was a sad story about how they hadn't won a World Series yeah. since whenever. Okay, now you won a couple. Shut up. Yeah. You know, you're no you're no longer the most forlorn, forlorn, yeah. victimized fan base. Go right. away. Exactly. You know, in fact, in fact, in Seattle, it's the Mariners now who have the the biggest stretch of, uh, first of all, not going to the playoffs. I think two thousand and one, okay. um, um, among any team, but possibly. I mean, someone will correct me, but possibly the only MLB team not been to a World Series. Yes, it is possible of the existing franchises. Yeah. I, I think that's true. So I, I think Seattle now takes over where the Red Sox and Cubs used to be the, you know, poor me, poor us, yeah. special in our suffering. <laughs> Not anymore. Not anymore. They're just another team that's a good team some years and not a good team other other years. Though I love Red Sox and Cubs fans, and actually those are my two favorite ballparks. So I'm not I'm not trying to be mean to them, but for a long time we got that kind of New England we're special in our suffering thing all the time, and I think people were good and sick of it. So I'm glad that they <laughs> I'm glad that they won. <laughs> And the way they won, and the way they won, the Red Sox. Um, well, oh, that sure. was in the playoffs, right? The the way they came back in that series against the Yankees. Well, because again, they were down to their last out, right? They sure were. They sure yeah. were. So maybe a little karma came back after the Mets thing. Yeah. Um, 
And I remember that guy. I remember being in Tucson with friends, and the game and game three was on, and the Yankees were winning. And I thought, oh, those Red Sox, you know, can't yeah. get it done. Can't can't close the deal. And then yeah. they won the next game, and the next game, and the next game. So, so you got to hand it to them. Yeah, no, that was a great series. That was a great series. Um, is there your? You said what your favorite era was. Is there a cutoff where you won't? Uh, yeah, you know, it gets kind of boring to me after about 1980. I used to say 1970, but I okay. think 1980, uh, it just gets a little boring. And I think it's because uniform designs got to be very, very corporate. In other words, you know, uh, because licensing is such a big part of professional sports now, these teams, you know, hire out their designs to very expensive marketing firms and design firms, and that's great. It works for them, but it makes for a kind of a, a fairly cookie-cutter and predictable. Yeah. If I see one more basketball team logo in a, like a Superman shield, that sure. got to be a thing for a while. Now there's like 15 of them. Yeah. I mean, I'm probably exaggerating slightly, but not that much. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think the professional design work in the contemporary stuff is it's like stadiums. The first one is really cool, and then they just redo it a hundred million times. Yeah, like when they did Cam, you know, Camden Yards was great and revolutionary, retro park with blah blah blah, and then the next five were exactly the same. I know a little bit about stadium design, so you go, okay, okay. Jacobs Field. They just move this piece over here, and they just move this piece here, but it's basically the same thing. Because, um, like the designers, they put all their effort into the first one. And then it's like, how can we leverage that, you know, and <laughs> we're not going to reinvent the wheel. We've already created this, so we're just going to sell it over and over again. And then and then, mar- or, and then create it to fit the space they're given, I guess. Yeah, sure. But just, just give it a little bit of a twist here and a twist there. And, and, and that's what I feel like the um, team logo designs have done. It's just okay, except for the teams, of course, that have kept some traditional elements. You know, the Dodgers, Yankees, Cardinal, kind. Yeah. Because you can't, you know, if you own that, you can't, you can't pay a design firm to come up with tradition. They've got that value built in over a hundred years of using it. So you don't need to be the Yankees and go to a design firm and say we need to rebrand. Right. You no, know? you only need to rebrand if your shit is weak. Right, right. Sorry, I don't know if we can swear on this. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. fine. um, You know, if your stuff is weak, you need a new one every three years. And then your fans have to throw out that crap and buy the new crap. Yeah. So so when you ask me about it, that's why I'm not interested in it, because it's very corporate and kind of disposable for the most part. Yeah, I read all these articles, you know, when, uh, like, just the L.A. Rams just rebranded. I'm like, really? You just, you have all this stuff. You're just gonna you're you're gonna just tweak it a little bit and then call it new. I yeah. mean, it's I mean, why do you even need to do that? Um, yeah. Was, anyway, was there we were talking about corporate designs and and mm-hmm. marketing firms, but back in the era that you you're fond of, was there one? company or was there, was there one person who came up with these? You know, that's dogs? a really good question. It's They're the unsung heroes. It's sort of like session musicians who played on all the great 60s records who never got any credits. Right. Um, I, I think it didn't really, it, it was looked at differently and it was not something people um, ever talked about. I think there were just people working in the uniform companies who who sit there with a pencil and drew stuff or yeah. someone working in the front office of the team, which is why I think they were great, because they were really organic. Um, whoever first drew that Cardinals design, you know, if they got a royalty for everything sold with that on it, they'd, their family would be billionaires many times <laughs> over. Sure. But it probably just was somebody probably didn't put a lot of thought into it. They just said, how about this? And they're like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, or the Yankee NY, you know, in 1914 or whenever they started using it for the first time. Um, why is that such a classic look? There's only here's here's another example of what I don't why I don't like the modern what I call corporate designs because almost everything is over designed and that's because of computers because you can put 15 colors in a design. Unfortunately, people do right. Mm-hmm. How many colors are in the Yankee and Dodger uniform? Well, one. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um, so so that stuff would never happen in today's design environment. 
you would need a metallic gold behind the main color or teal or purple or some horrible thing. Um, and uh, that's why I, the, the current designs don't interest me much because they're basically, they're contemporary. They look great now, and in two years they'll look passe. Right. Interesting. Very interesting. Like, like leisure suits or gamer <laughs> jackets. Well, well, you know, you, you talk about the unsung heroes, and it, it kind of reminds me of that episode of Country Music I watched where it was the receptionist who came up with the term outlaw country. Sure. And it stuck. Yeah, the music world is filled with stories of receptionists coming up with suggestions to do things that were then turned into major hits. Really? Um, yeah, there's, you know, I, I forget the exact story, but Stax Records, there's a story like that. And then there's a story, you know, that 10cc hit, I'm Not in Love? Yep. Um, I think the receptionist there came up with the idea of how to do something on that record that just from a casual comment she made when it wasn't working, the arrangement wasn't working. And she said, how about doing this? And they said, oh, well, we'll try that. And that's the only thing we haven't tried. And that, that made the record great. You know, uh, I think it's, I, I can't say that that can't happen now. But I, I think it's much more difficult for things to happen that way now. Well, it's all it has to be, you know, shown to a focus group, and then. Yes, exactly. That's it. Yeah, yeah. We, 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 you know, this group didn't like it, or this group thinks we need to do this, and then they try to please everybody. Um, and of course, when you're trying to please everybody, you sometimes end up not pleasing anybody. Right. But, right. but that's a, you know, it's a business. So my aesthetics, I have to remind myself. Um, you know, don't really impact what people do as a business. They they have to sell licensed products, and to sell licensed products, unfortunately, a lot of teams have to reinvent their their branding every three to five years. Sure. Unless you're the Yankees or the Red Sox, then you don't. Well, it's interesting because I, I've spoken with you, and and you're rooted really uh, in Americana in, in the deep history of the of the games that are played here. And I spoke um, earlier uh, with uh, Steve Weir of Rockmount. Oh yeah, I remember yeah. Steve. Yeah. yeah, so his his country or his shirt designs are also steeped in in Americana. You you kind of right. both have that in in common, and you both you both appeal as well to to artistic uh, types. Yes. Yeah. Now before we go, I would be amiss if uh, well, okay. I actually have to ask you this because you said. Like Elvis Costello, I'm yeah. a huge Joe Jackson fan. Do you, where do you oh, yeah. stand on that? Yeah, we're good. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, I love that stuff. Um, Jackson and Graham Parker at the same time, and yeah. uh, you know, he re- he played here recently. Joe Jackson did. Um, I didn't get to go, but he played at a theater, so a really small venue. Yeah, and, he just and, did uh, it with his uh, 40th anniversary tour. Yeah, so I was mm-hmm. told. Uh, you know, I've seen Elvis Costello about forty-five times. I think okay. <laughs> since nineteen what nineteen eighty. Ironically, we've been talking about country. So the first time I saw them was in L.A. and they were they were touring behind his country record, Almost Blue. So oh. it was an amazing show because they came out and they did an hour and a half of pure country with a pedal steel player added to the band. The attractions. Okay. They took a break. And then they came back and just did blistering rock and roll for another wow. hour and a half. So, wow, it was a pretty incredible. Show. Yeah, and th- and that band, I don't think anybody touched the attractions. And you still two out of three. Now it's the Imposters, so it's just a right. different bass player. But it's um, you know, the drummer um and the and the keyboardist Steve Naive. It's the same people he's been playing with since '78. Do you have? I'm gonna. I'm just gonna wrap it up, but. but Sure. This non non uh, clothing related. Uh, do you have a, fo- a favorite uh, Costello album, and then a favorite <coughs> replacement yeah. song? Yeah, Costello album would be "Get Happy." Okay. Okay. And uh, replacement song would be "Can't Hardly Wait" from uh, oh. "Pleased to Meet Me." Okay. Yeah. Well, Steve, uh, not Steve, Jerry. I was just I had Steve on the brain. Jerry, it was a pleasure to meet you. And you have the retail store in Seattle. Yeah, currently closed due to the right. Uh, pandemic. Right. But when it, when the pandemic's over, the store's going to be open. We hope and, so. Oh, God, I hope so. I hope to get yeah. out there because I, I want to visit you guys and I want to visit Funko. Uh, yeah. We're also in Seattle. Yep. Um, and, of course, online at 
ebbets.com? Yeah, ebbets.com. Ebbets. Yeah, E-B-B-E-T-S. Well, Jerry, I thank you for this. I hope your Passover was great. Um, did you Zoom it? No, I just did it with my uh, fiance. So oh, okay. just, just we just did the two of us, and we called my dad. So, so okay. that was nice. But you know, I'm not okay. terribly observant. But I, but we were going to visit my my dad, but um, obviously couldn't travel. So, yeah, I don't think he's up to the Zoom technology <laughs> quite yet. Yeah, I got into an argument with my mother over the phone as we were setting. Oh up. well, so. you know, you have to keep the tradition going, right? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> What's a Jewish holiday without a fight, right? You know, you got to have it. <laughs> Well, look, Jerry, thank you so much for this. I hope All to right. meet you one day in person, and uh, I'm going to still continue to buy this stuff because it is a great thank quality, you. and it's a great, great um, piece of, of this country's history. It really is. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Be Bye. well. Bye. And there it is. That was a great interview with Jerry. I always say they're great interviews because I'm always proud of them. I really enjoyed talking to him. He was he was everything I had hoped he would be, and and a lot more actually. So that's it. Thank you so much for uh, giving this a listen. I really appreciate it. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, actually, before I do that, I just want to say I hope everybody is staying safe and staying, uh, you know, hand washing and quarantined and being good to each other. It's a little stir crazy when you're surrounded by the same people every day, uh, or if you're alone and you're just listening to this. Um, and other podcasts, well, I hope you're maintaining your sanity. Reach out to me if you want to on uh, Facebook. We're probably friends. John Baker is my name. Uh, on Twitter, at the real John Baker, um, or the website, the number two, the word lazy, the number two, the word right.com. Um, thanks for listening. Go to ebbets.com, E B B E T S.com. Uh, there's a great online store there. And uh, if you're in Seattle, you know, when it's open, go visit him. I want to get there as well and meet him and meet Chris from Funko and uh, go to the the market. Okay, take care of yourselves. Uh, hopefully I'll have something new for you next week. I'm working on it. And um, be well, be good to each other, blah, blah, blah. Miss you all. Um, can't wait to see people in person. Take care. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Too lazy to ride. We're in